Welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, editor of CapEx. The world has just witnessed the worst attack on Jewish people since the Holocaust. Yet amid the international condemnation of Hamas terrorists, there has also been equivocation and even celebration in some quarters. No other conflict stirs emotions like that between Israel and Palestine. So why is it that the world's only Jewish state appears to be held to completely different standards to other countries? Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, has a word for it. Israelophobia. His new book explains how the world's oldest hatred has evolved, co-opting identity politics and anti-colonialism to turn British values against themselves. He joined me at our offices for a conversation occasionally difficult, but one that couldn't have been more timely. So Jake, thank you so much for joining me in what has been a horrible week, I think for everyone, but particularly for the Jewish community. So without wishing to sound too kind of Holly Willoughby, I thought I'd just start by saying, how are you? It's strange covering this as a journalist. It's making me think, actually, the nearest comparison I've got personally is the Bastetown attacks. Mm. Uh, I was a foreign correspondent for some years, and that was the second story I did in that particular job. The experience of being confronted with such horror. Obviously, the Bastetown, I was on the ground and speaking mm. to people firsthand, but, so it's a little different. But then in this situation, I know people personally. But the sense of being confronted with that horror and having to lock your emotions away in a place where only you know the combination to open it is quite similar. It's a huge trauma, obviously, for the world, the West, Jewish people and Israelis. People haven't been happy at the office. We've had new locks put on the doors. People sometimes have had to take a bit of time out and things. So, Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. How do you assess the response more generally in the media? So I know your paper, you published your front page in, in Hebrew, but it's fair to say that some other sections of the media have not shown quite the same level of solidarity. One way of putting it is, <laughs> yeah, we normally publish our front page in English, obviously. We're the oldest Jewish paper in the world. And this week, for the first time in history, we published the headline in, in Hebrew as a gesture of solidarity. But you're right, that solidarity has been very lacking, mm. I think. I mean, you know, there are 17 British victims, mm. which is roughly the same as there were in the Manchester Arena bombings. Do you know the names or the pictures? I mean, they haven't been publicized at all. From my point of view and from the point of view of the Jewish community, to see the number of people who observed the worst jihadi attack in history, a medieval level of barbarity, and their instinctive response is to raise the flag of Palestine, mm. and worse than that, to chant in support of Hamas, which is a criminal act, it's a prescribed terrorist group. To see that says a lot about our society here in Britain, the threats that British Jews feel that we face. One of the things that I found shocking was that the BBC were refusing to call Hamas terrorists. As you say, they're a prescribed terrorist organisation. They're a prescribed terrorist organisation. The King yesterday called them terrorists. By contrast, the BBC calls the IRA terrorists, mm. calls Al-Qaeda terrorists, and calls ISIS terrorists. But they don't call Hamas terrorists because they feel there's some sense of, you know, there are two ways of looking at things. Mm. But the thing is that Hamas, ISIS, and Al-Qaeda all have the same historical ideological roots in the Muslim Brotherhood. It's the same ideology in different parts of the world. Mm. Um, and that ideology, as I say in my book, was fermented during the Second World War when the extremist leader of the Palestinians, who was called Amin al-Husseini, went to Berlin and collaborated with Hitler and other high-ranking Nazis to translate Nazi anti-Semitism into an Arabic context mm. and then pump it into the Middle East as propaganda, mainly through the wireless, but also 
leaflets and other means, to create this strange hybrid of Islamist anti-Semitism and Nazi anti-Semitism, which really lit a touch paper in the Middle East, which was, I mean, you know, there was anti-Semitism there already, but it made it, it gave it a new sharpness and a new potency. Mm. And that, the inheritance of that was the Muslim Brotherhood. Husseini was one of the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood. And from the Muslim Brotherhood came Hamas, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. You can see it clearly in Hamas's charter. Article 32 says something to the effect of, as we see in the protocols of the elders of Zion, the Jews are seeking to take over the Middle East. So this is not like Nazi propaganda. This is mm. Nazi propaganda. Al-Qaeda, the court cases in Hamburg for the surviving members of the Al-Qaeda cell, demonstrated that they targeted New York because they saw it as a center of Jewish power. As for ISIS, I mean, the techniques and brutality that ISIS have used have been mirrored by Hamas mm. in recent days. The beheadings, the burnings, rape, mutilation, parading bodies, executions, because they have identical ideological roots. And yet, certainly on the left, there's a fetishization of Hamas. Jeremy Corbyn called them his friends, and there's a video of him saying that he thought it was a grave historical mistake to label them terrorists. There's this sense that Hamas are somehow some Che Guevara group that's kind of glamorous and freedom fighters. These people who support them in the West are the useful idiots that sanitize brutal jihadism and are welcoming them, actually, enabling them, not just into Israel, but also onto our streets as well. So it's a serious cultural corrosion that we have here. Yeah, I, mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of people were shocked by how supine the police response. I mean, to have a free Palestine demonstration outside the Israeli embassy the day after such horrible things has happened. I think people are, I mean, I certainly struggle to understand why we're not much more assertive in cracking down on this stuff. When I mean, you see what the police do to sort of the Sarah Everard protesters and the contrast is just... I see where you're coming from. Personally, I would have preferred the police not to have cracked down on the Sarah Everard yeah. protesters. <laughs> And I think that when it comes to cracking down on a free Palestine demo, I mean, look, the criminal threshold is support for Hamas. Mm. That's illegal. Saying free Palestine and waving a Palestine flag is not illegal. Yes, and, I wasn't and, being careful enough. Um, but, but nor should it be. You know, I mean, in, in my book, I'm very clear to point out that I'm not arguing that supporting the Palestinians is a bad thing. Mm. Um, it's a reasonable cause. I have my differences with elements of it. We can talk about that. But it's a reasonably held view within the Overton window. The fact that the free Palestine demonstration happened the day after these atrocities felt like it was supporting them and probably was, but you can't arrest people for what you suspect or what you feel they're trying to say. You can only really arrest them for what they do and say. I mean, I think the scale of the trauma is important to understand as well. If you bear in mind the small population in Israel, mm -hmm. which is less than London, it dwarfs 9-11. If you translate it into a British context with our population, it would be about 8,500 people killed. In America, about 45,000 people. It is the worst jihadi atrocity that the world has seen for, you know, four or 5,000 people to take to the streets of London within two days. Supporting Palestine was really a measure of this corrupted flow of blood that's running through the body politic in Britain. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're very eloquent about that kind of degrading of our political life in, in your book. But I suppose my, my final question is kind of about the past few days is about the political response. So our leaders in the West have been very quick to s declare their support for Israel, to say it has every right to defend itself. But do you think we'll see that shift? What do you think the future holds Was the humanitarian situation in Gaza is likely to degrade? Um, 
I mean, whenever Israel engages in military action, there's always a ticking time clock where towards the expiration of international support. There are certain elements of the jihadi world and their useful idiots mm. who do their best to make that period of time as short as possible, as we've seen with the demonstration a couple of days ago and elsewhere. In terms of the Western leadership, at the moment, it's unequivocal mm. in its support for Israel. But sadly, that won't last very long, I fear, in many quarters, because war is hell. You know, Saul Bellow described Israel as a moral holiday resort for mm. the West. It's where you can allow your morals to enjoy themselves without having to experience any of the consequences yourself. For anybody with a clear-eyed view of what's been going on and with compassion and with solidarity for the values that we share, Israel and, and ourselves, they can see that this was an atrocity that, like I said, dwarfs 9-11, that requires a significant military response. Only yesterday, though, I was on a debate on LBC and somebody was suggesting some negotiations needed to happen with Hamas. Mm. Well, I, so I recalled that Jeremy Corbyn suggesting that we should negotiate with ISIS, and he was laughed out of Parliament at the time. Mm. People just don't they have this double standard because it's easy for us here in Britain to sit in our armchairs and wag our fingers and say, yes, you know, you've suffered the equivalent of 8,500 people murdered, raped, mutilated, beheaded. But be nice. War is not nice. Think about the way that we have waged war within living memory. When 9-11 happened in America, not here, 4,000 miles away, we joined with America to invade Iraq, killing upwards of 200,000 people. And we all know about the allegations of human rights abuse and the controversy that happened then. And that wasn't a case when we were facing an existential threat. Mm. The last time we were facing an existential threat was in the Second World War. And look how that ended with the firebombing of Dresden. Mm. We literally burnt alive 25,000 people indiscriminately in Dresden. And yet now we have the temerity to say to the Israelis, you're experiencing existential threat. Israel is not very far from potential destruction if the Northern Front opens up. And yet you've got to feed and water your enemies and provide them with internet and energy while you're trying to destroy them. And that's complicated. And I accept that. Maybe we can talk about that. But it feels like the West is often using Israel, particularly on the left, as a moral holiday resort. Mm, absolutely. I, I think that's the point that comes across really strongly in your book, that Israel seems to be held to a completely different standard to any other country. And you know, what is it about the only Jewish state in the world that demands this completely different sense of moral equivalence? My question to you is, is what is Israelophobia and how is it different from old-fashioned anti-Semitism? Well, I mean, Israelophobia, I mean, the subtitle of the book is the newest version of the oldest hatred. It is the same. It's not different. You know, look at what's happened over the last few days in Israel. The level of debauched butchery mm -hmm. is the same as the pogroms of the 19th century in Eastern Europe, in Russia. It's the same as the medieval butchery of Jews in Britain, actually, before the expulsion in 1290 and elsewhere. It's the same stuff. Hamas are not motivated by politics. They don't, they're not just freedom fighters seeking to live in peace. They are of a peace with the mobs throughout history. You know, Anti-Semitism has, one of its characteristics is the ability to mutate. Mm. It's a shapeshifter because it tries to avoid detection by appearing like a virtue. In medieval times, uh, in the Middle Ages, 
anti-Semitism presented itself as a religious virtue, you know, killing Jews, uh, marginalizing them, expelling them because they were the killers of Christ. And it was almost like godly work. In the 20th century, once religion had been overtaken by science, anti-Semitism moved again and masqueraded as pseudoscience. So you see the Nazis using pseudoscientific justifications, seeing Jews as an inferior race that had to be exterminated for the good of mankind, as a virtuous thing, we're trying to save you. And that's been discredited, at least in the West, because of the Holocaust. So you can no longer say, I hate Jews, mm. but you can say, I hate Zionists. And that's where anti-Semitism has moved on again. It's infested, really, the area of politics. You can hate Jews on a political mm. basis for their nation state, for their national home. And that is the prism through which the old hatred now mainly shines. When it's refracted through that prism, it produces a spectrum of social justice words, white supremacy, mm. colonialism, genocide, apartheid. And all of those, they're the religious, virtuous language of our day. And they are used similarly as cover for the oldest hatred. And so that is what I'm describing as Israelophobia. I think what I found interesting is that this phenomenon you describe it, it's not just kind of infringed political movements or online, it's embedded in institutions. I mean, it's in the UN demanding that at every meeting of the Human Rights Council, they have to discuss the situation of Israel and Palestine. It's really woven into our political institutions. I mean, the UN is a fantastic example and very pertinent now as the UN uh, talks about Israel committing war crimes mm. before even things really happened and taking sides immediately after 1,200 Israelis have been butchered. Yeah, and, but the UN is a very clear example because of the statistics you can cite. Like you say, the UN Human Rights Council, Article 7 of its code, mandates it to debate Israel-Palestine at every single meeting. That's the only issue that it has to debate, mm. not anything else in the world. As a result, it's condemned Israel twice as many times as any other country in the world. And the General Assembly last year condemned Israel 15 times, and the rest of the world combined were condemned 13 times. These are things you cannot ignore. They're very blatant. There are many reasons for this. But if you look across the world, across the West, in international and national institutions, you tend to find strains of this Israelophobia. And not just in institutions, but also in the sorts of organizations that are dominated by the elites. So in Britain, it would be not just the civil service, but also advertising agencies and schools and universities in particular, museums, art galleries, mm. theatres, all of these institutions and others, the people who run them are generally part of the elites. It's a particular kind of elite that identifies itself with a suite of what Rob Henderson has called luxury beliefs. Yeah. And those luxury beliefs include radical positions on race, on transgenderism, on sexuality, on colonialism, on slavery, on our history, and on Israel and Palestine. And these are not held as a mark of solid values that's open to debate and that's genuinely held. They are held narcissistically as a symbol of status. Mm. And that's why you so often find Israelophobia cascading down through these institutions from the top. Do you think that's why it seems to be a particular feature of the left? I mean, I'm not saying it cuts across political divides, but it does seem to be particularly prevalent on the left and particularly when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the Labour. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the country. In the United States, there's much more anti-Semitism on the right and the same in Germany. Here in Britain, it's really more of a feature of the left. And there are various reasons for that. It's complicated. One is the luxury beliefs. 
and the markers of identity. You know, Israel-Palestine pegs you politically, mm. actually by the right as well as the left. Mm. It's become a political wedge issue. But also, historically, in my book, I describe how Israel, when it was first established, was the darling of the left. Stalin was the first to recognize the country mm. de jure, and he gave arms shipments from Czechoslovakia to the nascent state to enable it to withstand the Arab invasion. Around the time of the Cold War, just before, that changed. And you know, if you speak to old people on the left, they all remember Israel fondly. Oh, I went to a kibbutz there mm. or whatever. That's not the case now. And it changed during the Cold War when Russia associated itself or the Soviet Union associated itself with the Arab world. America became associated with Israel, particularly in the 70s, actually. The Soviet Union unleashed its propagandists against the Jewish state. They were called Zionologists. Mm. And these Kremlin propagandists took old-fashioned anti-Semitism, uh, Russian anti-Semitism by the ultra-nationalists called the Black Hundreds and others, and reskinned it and created these myths that are familiar to us today. All those tropes that I mentioned earlier, mm. that Israel is perpetrating a genocide, it's a white supremacist state, it's a Nazi state, it's an apartheid state, these are all created by the Russians mm. in the Cold War. They're all lies. They're quite easy to disprove. I mean, how can Israel be a genocidal state? when the Palestinian population has increased fivefold since Israel's establishment. I mean, that's pretty inept. <laughs> um, how can Israel be a white supremacist state when more Israelis are non-white than are white? How can Israel be a colonialist state when there's no power that's colonizing it? And when, according to the history, it's a post-colonial state mm -hmm. after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the British Mandate, uh, characteristic of the region, and so on. Apartheid as well. How can Israel be an apartheid state when most of its national football team are Arabs? You know, so, but these lies were seeded into the West by the Soviet Union in a vast campaign, diplomatically, via covert and overt means, into the West. I mean, we had newspapers published here that Jeremy Corbyn's circle, and mm. to a degree him himself, were involved with that reprinted this stuff. And one of them actually, I think it was called Soviet Weekly, or might have been Straight Left, one of the two, at one point published a letter that was deeply venomously Israelophobic. And it was only afterwards that they realized it had been written by the leader of the National Front. And they mistakenly published it, mistaking it for someone from the left. And similar thing happened in France in 1973. A French guy working for the uh, Russian embassy was arrested for race hate because he'd published this pamphlet, which was anti-Zionist. But actually, they found that it had been copied from an ultra-nationalist uh, Russian text produced by the Black Hundreds. And literally all he'd done is change the word Jew for Zionist. And even the typos were the same. So all of this stuff flows into the left, the Corbynite left mm. that we are seeing today. And I think the other stream that's exacerbated it, that's joined together with it, is the stream of identity politics coming from the States. And that critical race theory plays a role. Patricia Bidel Padford, her idea that racism is prejudice plus power. Mm. And whenever you hear power, you know what they mean if you're Jewish. And the replacement of the ideals of Martin Luther King, who was an integrationalist <clears throat> who saw being black and being American as two parts of the same identity, the replacement of him with the black power movement, with Malcolm X, people who saw a rejection of Americanism and an embrace of Pan-Africanism, that was shot through with anti-Semitism. Malcolm X's biography talks about Zionist dollarism and accused Jews of only supporting the civil rights movement because it deflected attention from themselves. And so that stream has also come into the modern left. We see it in Diane Abbott's comments that Jews can't experience racism, only prejudice like redheads or Whoopi Goldberg saying that the Holocaust was not about race, it was two groups of white people. 
in Jeremy Corbyn, in that moment, and his followers, you saw the old socialism that was informed by Russian propaganda and the new identity politics that had its own type of, of um, hierarchy of racism that included anti-Semitism came together in this digital moment. And these kids who were chanting in 2017 or whatever it was, oh, Jeremy Corbyn at that festival, mm. represented the coming together of all these things, packaged up as an apparent virtue because it was decorated in the language of social justice. And so that's really, it seems to me, part of the moral corrosion of our country. And the Jews are simply in, first in the firing line. And it's led to a position today where you can have a mob of people, thousands of people on High Street Kensington in Britain supporting the worst jihadi atrocity that the world has seen. I wonder to what extent, I mean, we're talking about Diane Abbott and Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, to what extent do you think your time was useful idiots? To what extent were they malign and to what extent were they stupid or kind of duped by a conspiracy theory? Or is it all of these three things at the same time? I feel that there's perhaps an intellectual deficit in people who share those kinds of views. There's an intellectual rigidity. There's perhaps a lack of introspection. Even this week, Jeremy Corbyn was unable to condemn Hamas, even confronted with the evidence that his friends were the same as ISIS. He wasn't able to say, actually, I got it wrong. Mm. Whether there's a malignance there as well is a question for them. But I note that anti-Semites have never possessed the ability to look into their own hearts and see what's really going on. They've always felt that they're on the side of the angels. Even during Nazi times, as I mentioned earlier, SS officers who were doing the same as Hamas has been doing, killing, raping, stealing, plundering, deporting people to their deaths, were encouraged to do so with this term that Hannah Arendt has written about, which translates as a ruthless heart in the service of a greater good. They were told, you know, you are the heroes of humanity. You are taking on the hard task emotionally taxing task mm. of exterminating these people who are poisoning our world. And they believed it. For me, one of the most striking passages of all of her writings, she talks about the moral inversion that was created during the war in that way. She says that whereas in normal times, in normal society, people might have an inclination in the back of their minds to kill or to steal or to rob, but they resist it. In the Nazi era, that was inverted. So the SS officers, for example, may have had an inclination not to kill, yeah. not to steal, not to send people to their deaths, but they learned to resist that. And maybe that's true of the anti-Semites of today. Maybe they have something in the back of their mind that says, maybe it's not a good idea to be coming out in support of the worst acts of barbarism we've seen in living memory but they're able to put it aside because of their overriding sense that supporting the Palestinians is always the right thing to do. I think you make that point really well in your book that Israelophobia is a way of kind of, it turns British values against themselves. It, it, you know, it makes people go against their instinct and basic compassion. Exactly. I mean, that's a really interesting point, you know, to use your values against yourself. Mm. It's one of those things that when I wrote it, I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's quite, um, I'm going to think about that. But it really is true. It's fascinating that, you know, you see that I don't want to come across if I'm criticizing people who are pro-Palestinian. I'm talking about the extreme elements of them. Yeah. They ask ordinary Britons to say, 
If you are really compassionate, then you must support slaughter. If you really care about the Palestinians, give Hamas a bit of a break. And you see this in the media, actually, which is part of the problem. So many news reports are, at the moment, emphasising in great detail the suffering of Gaza. I'm not trying to undermine the suffering of ordinary Gazans. All I'm saying is that when we were at war with Germany, was our media focusing on the suffering of the Germans? I think that's a good point, but I suppose you do have to look at it the other way as well. There must be room for legitimate criticism of the actions of Israel. I mean, whatever's going to happen in this war, we are going to have to have room for debate about the way that both sides conduct themselves. I guess the question is where that departs from legitimate criticism and becomes Israelophobia. I couldn't agree with you more. Totally pro-criticism of any sort <laughs> and examination. You know, I might disagree with you if you criticise Israel on this or that or the other. I mean, I criticise Israel myself. You might disagree with me on different counts on which I criticise the state. That's all fine. I'm not complaining about that at all. I mean, you know, as I perhaps mentioned in the book that, you know, I think there's more criticism of Israel in Israel, mm. perhaps, than there is outside. Or sometimes it feels like that anyway when you're there. But there is a, a difference in quantity and quality of criticism when it tips over into Israelophobia, which is anti-Semitism. In terms of the quality, one of the hallmarks is that it articulates those lies that I've detailed earlier, white supremacy, genocide, apartheid, etc. The other is in terms of the quantity. You know, how much do you criticise Israel and for what, while turning a blind eye? to its neighbours. Gaza is a good example at the moment. Everyone's saying Gaza is an open-air prison, that the Israeli border is somehow, the fact that it's sealed is a part of imprisonment. I mean, quite obviously, the reason why the border has been sealed for the last 17, 18 years is to try to prevent the sort of tragedy we've seen Absolutely. in recent days. So it's like using the language of morality to undermine Israel's defence. It's a soft way of trying to do it. Same with the partition barrier on the West Bank before it was built. Suicide bombs were almost a weekly occurrence. Mm. Once it was built, they reduced to zero. They're calling it an apartheid wall. So what do you want? Take it down so we're not called an apartheid wall and then suffer the suicide bombs mm. every week. Back to Gaza, you know, this disproportionality and double standards like you were saying. Gaza has two borders, one with Israel, one with Egypt. Egypt hasn't opened its border. Egypt isn't responding in a humanitarian way. There are no refugees flowing into Egypt in the same way as during the Syrian civil war, they flooded into Jordan and Lebanon and elsewhere. Where's the pan-Arabism? Where's the Arab solidarity? And why is it that Israel is accused of creating this open-air prison camp because it's waging a war of existential nature? Is there not a case that Gaza is now facing an existential war? As you say, you know, Israel has said civilians leave, but there's nowhere they can go. Are they not also facing an existential threat now? And should we, is that water battery or is that legitimate? No, 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 that's, not, that's a good question. And I hope that Hamas are facing an existential threat. And I think they are. I think they will lose it soon, hopefully. But the question of, you know, the civilians have nowhere to go. I feel that's, I'm not accusing you of this, but the general, the argument is disingenuous. It has made its way into common parlance whereby people say it without questioning it. And again, I don't mean any criticism of you on this, but what we're talking about, the context is that when Israel carries out airstrikes of Gaza, it warns civilians in advance by way of leaflet drops, by way of text messages, mass text messages, by way of then what you call a knock on the roof, a, a dummy bomb that hits the building before a real bomb so you know it's about to come, so they can get out of the way. So far as I know, no other country in the world does that. When we bombed the hell out of ISIS, killing 40 children and then covering it up, which is a story which 
appeared on the Today program a few months ago and then vanished by the evening news wouldn't have been the same if it was Israelis killing Palestinian children. But when the RAF did, we didn't knock on anybody's roof. Mm. But Israel does that and says, get out the way. And they do have places to go to. They can't leave the Gaza Strip, particularly with the Egyptian border closed. They can go to schools. You have thousands and thousands of Palestinians are streaming into schools. The schools are packed out. Hospitals are packed out because they know the Israelis won't strike there. Now, I'm not saying that it's fun. It's hot. War is hell. War is hell. It's always hell. War isn't nice. It's hell. But in terms of the rules of engagement, I think to say that Israel is conducting an inhumane war and then leaving civilians nowhere to go, I think is one of those tropes that's been sort of circulated, which doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And you say that you do hope that Hamas are facing an existential threat, and implying, therefore, that there's a massive distinction between ordinary Palestinians and Hamas. Would you say that the same thing about ordinary Israelis and their government? Do you think it's possible to be an anti-Zionist or to be critical of Israel without straying into Israelophobia? Or do you think that the line is just too blurry? Well, I mean, there's a few different things there. For a start, I wouldn't compare Hamas to the Israeli government. I would say that in terms of the Palestinian uh, support for Hamas, let's not forget that they voted them in Mm. 2005. Having said that, there is a significant amount of people who loathe Hamas for different reasons, sometimes tribal reasons, sometimes genuine reasons. There's a guy I know who lives in Gaza, who's not fixed there when I was a foreign correspondent. He doesn't like Hamas, but most people are behind Hamas in Gaza, he says. But yes, you can distinguish between, I mean, there's a whole spectrum, isn't there? People who have some sympathy for Hamas, who are signed up members of Hamas, but then you've got the people who actually take up arms, and then you've got the real fanatics and the leadership. Mm. You know, I'm not saying that they should all be destroyed. I'm saying that get rid of the leadership and the fighters and try and change hearts and minds overall. On the Israeli side, of course, I would emphasize not comparing the Hamas leadership to the Israeli leadership, but Mm. like any normal country, you can criticize Rishi Sunak without saying that I'm anti-British. But if you start to criticize everything about Britain, maybe you are. And I think that a similar thing with Israel. The final point you made about is it possible to be anti-Zionist legitimately? I tend to feel that before Israel's establishment, being anti-Zionist was a reasonable position to hold. You could have said, people did say, I don't think the solution to two millennia of Jewish wandering and suffering and persecution is a state in the land of Palestine. But after it's been established for 75 years, it feels to me like the difference between a couple contemplating an abortion before birth Mm. and then infanticide once the child is running around, once the child is 75 years old. Is there a reasonable argument that Israel should be held to a different standard to other countries? Because it is, I feel like people in the West feel more responsible for it because it's our creation, it's our responsibility. Is that one reason why we think it's held to different standards, completely different standards for its neighbours in the region, for example? Is it because it is actually much more like a Western country than it is like a Middle Eastern country? I think there's something in that. I mean, obviously, if you've got a Western liberal democracy, the scale of values are different and the scale of judgment is different. You know, we don't judge Britain in the same way as mm. we judge North Korea. The point is that people campaign against Israel as if it's worse than North Korea, mm. you know, as if it's worse than its neighbors, even though the stats and the history, all of the evidence demonstrate that that's not the case. There's only one country in the world that faces apartheid week on campus, and it happens to be the only country, one of the only countries in the region that has no hint of apartheid in Mm. its society. I mean, compare Israel to its immediate neighbor, to the Palestinian territories. It's fascinating to me that if you go back to 
the UN partition plan uh, in 1947 48, the proposal was to have two states side by side an Israel with a Palestinian or Arab minority and a Palestine with a Jewish minority. This was standard for the time. I mean, mm. there was a big car up across the world. Syria and Lebanon, Iraq was divided. India and Pakistan was divided with huge bloodshed. Turkey and Greece, a bit earlier, but similar, and so on and so on. All of those partitions involved a lot of strife. But anyway, the proposal was an Israel with, a, with an Arab minority, a Palestine with a Jewish minority. That was the first time that the Palestinians rejected the two-state solution, instead proposing to wage war, which they did. They rejected it again in 2008. They were offered 100% pretty much of what they wanted and rejected it then. But fast forward to today and look back, the Israel with the Arab minority exists. 20% of Israeli citizens are Arabs. They have equal rights. They are free and they are citizens. Racism aside, there's racism everywhere. In the Palestinian territories, how many Jews are living under Palestinian control? Zero. Mm. Why? Because they'd be lynched. If you drive on the West Bank, as I was just a few weeks ago, actually, you can't approach a Palestinian village. There's a big red sign outside saying, Palestinian village ahead, don't go in. Entrance for Israeli civilians is dangerous. So where's the apartheid? Israel is the one that's accused of being an apartheid state. So that's what I mean. Obviously, it's fair to hold Israel to democratic standards, but it's sort of smeared as being worse than even the worst regimes on earth. And then even on the democratic standard point, it's required to uphold standards that even Britain and America don't uphold. In our warfare, for example, we just don't. Israel's got a, a more respectable civilian to combatant casualty ratio than we do in Iraq. Mm. As Saul Bellow put it, Israel is often called upon to uphold the moral burden that everybody else has dumped. Yeah, and I think even the fact that we're kind of having this conversation and that we're kind of agonizing over Israel when it has just suffered, as you say, the worst jihadi attack there's ever been, the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust. And instead of just having basic compassion and solidarity for this country, we're agonizing over it. That wasn't the case after the Bataclan attacks that you mentioned at the start. There are deep reasons why Israel is such an object of fascination. Mm. A lot of it is to do with anti-Semitism, Israelophobia. It goes right back. Israel is the foundation stone of Christian civilization mm. and indeed has a significant position in the Muslim world. The Bible made the city of the Jews the holy city for Christians, the Jewish homeland the holy land, and a Jewish prophet the son of God. Subsequently to that, the chosen people betrayed Christ and killed him. And then the idea that the chosen people uh, significance passed on to Christians means that there was a certain instinct to denigrate Jews to reassure Christians that they really have lost it. And this sort of fetishization of Israel, there's this sort of dual elevation and denigration. The, the Jews are simultaneously the chosen people and the killers of Christ. is reflected throughout history where mm -hmm. Jews were Untermenschen under the Germans, this despicable lowlife, but also the Ubermensch, mm. controlling the world, controlling finance, controlling the media, pulling the strings of wars and the dark hand behind world events. Jews are, in the Erasi of Roald Dahl, you know, he criticized Jews for going like lambs to the slaughter during the Holocaust. The quote was, if it was me, I'd have taken two or three of them with me. Then he also loathed Israel. Mm. So he despise the Jews for being too weak, but then loathe them when they refused to be victims. Mm. And that duality has been a feature of anti-Semitism 
uh, feature of Christian life since the dawn of recorded history. Yeah, I think it's the only form of racism that simultaneously punches up and down. But I mean, that's all been quite a bleak conversation, but actually there is constructive um, and, and positive stuff in your book too. So you identify five ways that you can kind of counter this when you encounter it. So perhaps it'd be helpful for our readers to kind of go through, like, if this is something that you're worried about and then you might be experiencing. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I hope that my book gives an intellectual framework and enough background and history to be able to to look at the tropes and the assumptions and the bigotry in the air and cut through it and realize and dispel it, replace it with enlightenment and reason. That's the idea. And at the end of the book, it offers that, it sort of distills it into these various different bullet points, which are basically debating points, questions to ask of somebody that if you're having a conversation, there's a few things that you can ask, which sometimes they're like, um, like acupuncture points, you know, that sometimes you can hit something that will open up a different way of looking at things. So things like, for example, what's it got to do with you? Mm. What's it got to do with you? Somebody who spends their whole life campaigning for the Palestinians, why? You know, why? And people are free to campaign for anything they want. Brian may campaign for the badger. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But why do so many people in certain areas of politics all feel so strongly about this identical issue when it's so insignificant by comparison Mm. to so many other issues? I mean, the cumulative death toll of all of Israel's wars for 75 years is about 86,000. In Iraq, in three years, we killed upwards of 200,000 with the Americans. 86,000 in 75 years, 200,000 in Iraq. The partition of India that took place almost simultaneously with the partition of Israel and Palestine, both as a result of British withdrawal, involved more than a million deaths and something like 14 million refugees. By comparison, there were 700, 750,000 Palestinian refugees and 900 Jewish refugees from the Middle East who were driven out subsequently. So what's it got to do with you? Why is this your cause? Mm. Another question is, a simple one, can you acknowledge that Israel has some good points? You know, there's only one pride march in the Middle East. Mm. There's only one country in which gay people can live freely. In fact, Palestinians sometimes become refugees into Israel because they're gay. There's only one place where all religions are respected. You know, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, even Baha'i have a temple there. If it's difficult for that person even to admit that there are some good points without calling it a washing, Israel makes great wine, but that's wine washing. <laughs> Israel, you know, yes, there's veganism, but that's vegan washing. The amount of washing, I mean, there's sport washing, yeah. there's pink washing. If to talk when you talk about Israel's gay pride uh, marches, there's as I said, wine washing, all these different types of washing. You can't move for washing. You know, it's like uh, John Paul Sartre said. I quote him in my book: "Is the Jew is." Foul just because he is a Jew. Everything he breathes, everything he does is contaminated by the fact that he's Jewish. You know, if there's something about, he writes about how if he builds a bridge from the first to the last span, it's contaminated and evil and infected. And you see that coming through modern, politically correct social justice discourse with regard to Israel. And perhaps just as a final question, how do you feel being a British Jew at the moment? How do you feel about the future? Do you think this is a safe and a good country to be a Jewish person in? Or do you feel fearful? No, I think this is a safe and a good country to be. I mean, you know, Jews have never had it so good. This is the best we've ever had in our history, you know, know, 4,000 years. You know, the chief rabbi, when he was giving evidence to a select committee on anti-Semitism, drew a small dot in the middle of a piece of paper and held it up and said, what do you see? And everyone said, well, I see a dot. He said, no, no, you see a mainly white piece of paper, but there's also a dot in there. Mm. 
And that's what anti-Semitism is like generally in Britain. You know, I've experienced it, but I don't care. Compared to what's gone before, compared to what's happening now in Israel, I'm okay. My kids experienced it at school, but it's okay. They're taunted sometimes, they have comments, but they've never been physically attacked. They don't have friends who abandoned them. I mean, all this might come in, in, in the future if this all hots up, but so far it's okay. And, you know, we're lucky to be here, living in this amazingly tolerant and safe and pluralistic place, the like of which the world has never really seen. People don't very often question my Britishness, question my loyalty. I mean, online some idiots do, but on the whole, you know, so I think it's a fantastic place that we live in and I'm very grateful for it. But at the same time, I'm very conscious that what is commonly derided as the culture wars is a vital thing because the forces of darkness that we've seen in Israel are represented here as well, as we've just been talking about. Whether it's the useful idiots, the enablers, the naifs, the people who have absorbed the discourse through their milieu, or whether it's actual jihadis here, there is a big move, as I said, to contaminate our cultural bloodstream. The Jews are in first in line for this thing which is coming for all of us. So I do feel that that's uh, an important battle for all of us to take up. But at the same time, on the whole, things are great. An important uh, weapon in that battle to be prepared <laughs> is Raleophobia. It is out now in all good bookshops and I recommend it to all our listeners. And Jake, thank you so much for talking to me. And as I say, what must have been the worst week. Thank you. Thank you.